Hey everyone, welcome back to the Honan Podcast. Today's guest is Sahil Bloom, a founder, investor, creator, entrepreneur, father, and someone I'm fortunate enough to call a friend. Sahil is one of the best sources of advice when it comes to optimizing your days and designing a framework that allows you to maximize your time with the people and things that matter to you most. You won't want to miss this one. So let's get to it. Welcome to Hone In with me, Saad Alam. This is a podcast that goes deep into topics that help you live longer and smarter. Each week, we'll deliver science-backed advice from the world's leading experts in nutrition, health, technology, fitness, relationships, and mindset. We cut through the BS to get you real answers and solutions. So let's hone in. All right. Well, listen, we are incredibly excited to welcome Sahil. And Sahil, I have known you now for almost like three years. And I'll say it has been unbelievably exciting to watch how you have transitioned from VC venture investor to kind of like almost like I don't the, know what I am either. So if you have trouble defining it, <laughs> I mean it's almost like you're the you're our national voice of of growth and reason almost. <laughs> I, that, I, that's those are big words. I appreciate it. I need to bring you around with me more often. It's crazy the reach and the scale that these platforms have now. And like, I mean, I'm still blown away just by the fact that I can write something sitting at my desk in my house in New York and reach people all around the world. Like, and, and at different walks of life, like it just blows me away. I, you know, I get um, replies to my email. So my newsletter goes out to today, like 400,000 people. And, um, you know, people, when people reply to it, like if you hit reply, it comes into my email inbox. And so like, I, you know, now it's a little bit more cumbersome dealing with that, obviously at the numbers it's at than it used to be, but I still read all of them and I see them. And it's amazing to me the like different types of people that are engaging with the type of content that I'm putting out. Like you think most people that are kind of creators, quote unquote, have sort of like a niche or a lane. They're like creating for 20 somethings or they're creating for, you know, 40 year old moms or whatever, like they have their lane. And I get reply. I mean, the, the stuff I'm putting out because I think it's so broad in terms of how you might apply it to your life. Like, I'm not giving you answers as much as I'm trying to help you ask better questions. I think people from like all walks of life can engage with it, which is by design. And it's just cool to me. Like, you know, an 80 year old uh, in you know Russia, like replying to one of my emails just as much as like a 22 year old kid that's getting out of high school, you know, getting out of college and trying to figure out how to, you know, pursue the next phase of his life. Like that to me is very, very cool that you can do that just sitting at your desk at home. Well, I'll tell you, I knew it was something special when my mother came to me. I'm being serious. My mother came to me and started saying, hey, this guy's stuff on Instagram is really (laughs) interesting. And I said, it's funny. I know this guy. (laughs) (laughs) He's not as interesting in real life, I promise. (laughs) I got to ask you this question before we get into it. How the hell did you know that jumping from what is obviously a very well-known path and lucrative career into this, where you were a one-man lone wolf, was the move for you to make? Um, I didn't, is the honest answer. I didn't know that it was the right move to make. I, um, like most people, I mean, I had a pretty up and down journey of figuring that out. I was, you know, the the path you allude to, I was working in private equity for the first seven years of my career, which is very much yeah, half Indian. My mom's Indian, like very much the track. Like you get on, you join a place and you kind of just follow it. She was already a little, my mom was a little annoyed that I didn't go to McKinsey out of, out of college. Like that would have been the like real track version, if not medical school or a PhD. Um, but I was very much just like, 
you know, you make a little bit more money every single year. It's very lucrative if you stay for long periods of time. It sounds impressive to other people around you. You have the like fancy title at a young age and the promotions, all that, all that stuff. Um, but I sort of had this nagging feeling that something was off or something was missing. And for me, what's when I started to realize it was I always thought that like getting to some certain level or achieving some amount of money or doing some certain thing was going to be what made me happy. And okay, when I make VP or when I make a million dollars or whatever the thing is, I was like, that's when I'm going to be happy. And then I sort of woke up one day and had like arrived, quote unquote, like I'd gotten those things and realized that I just wanted more. Like I, I just woke up and I was like, okay, well now that person's making more than me or that person's doing something that's bigger. And so I need to go do that in order to be happy. And the number, the whole, the goalposts just changed in my mind. And so I just started feeling this feeling of dread of like, oh, I'm never actually doing enough. I need to do more. I need to go bigger. I need a bigger house, better car, whatever, all those things. And at some point, it was just really unhealthy. And I knew that like something needed to change in my life for me to actually find internal happiness and joy in what I was doing on a daily basis versus just working towards some end that somehow was a mirage. I would get there and it had just disappeared and rematerialized on the horizon. Um, and that journey had a lot of ups and downs, but you know, I didn't ever, I never felt like I knew that what I was, this new thing was going to work out. Um, I just kind of knew that I had a lot of energy around it. And I find in life that if you pursue things, you have a lot of energy around good outcomes tend to come. So you to mention something about a lot of joy, it seems like one of the most joyful things in your life right now is your son. And I would say that you have been chronicling it, talking through it, documenting you and your Romans time together almost every day. It seems like you kind of got a dream job where you kind of <laughs> write all this stuff that people really care about and you get to spend this time with this little guy who gets to watch you and you get to watch him grow every moment, which is arguably one of parents' largest regrets if they don't get to do it. What has it been like and what have you learned about yourself? Yeah, so my son was born a little over a year ago. A couple days later, we brought him home and uh, we were in bed one morning. I think it was like a Saturday morning. So I go and get him and I bring him into bring him into bed with us. And I sat down there. My wife was asleep. The sun was like kind of coming in through the windows and my son was sleeping and he kind of had this like little baby smirk on his face. Um, he's probably like, I don't, I don't know what he was doing. He was a few days old. And I, for the first time in my life, had this feeling of enough. Like this is what enough looks like for me that I didn't want anything more in that moment. I was just like, if this is all I ever can get, if this moment, this feeling is all I ever have, it'll be enough. And that was the first time in my life I had ever experienced that. I had always, I'm like, I'm probably like you, like I'm very ambitious. A lot of listeners are probably very ambitious, driven. There's always some more that you're looking for, whatever the next thing is, like whether it's a promotion or a house or whatever, the next thing. And the challenge is when you're constantly chasing some more, you lose sight of the beauty of that feeling of enough. And for me, that was this big aha moment of my life of this is the thing that actually is really important to me and that really matters. And I want to do everything I can to really embrace and appreciate that feeling. Now, how that's played out for me is in a really interesting way, which is basically this realization that you have a 10 year period. I'm saying 10, it might be eight, it might be 12, when you are your kid's favorite person in the world, you and your partner. 
And that traditionally is also the period of time when most people are working the most, they're gone the most, they're traveling, they're really trying to rise in their career because it's the time when you're like on average between 30 and 50 years old, probably somewhere in that band. And what a shame it is that we lose those precious years spending all of our time stressing about something else and working. And so my whole thing was how can I design my world such that I can really embrace and appreciate that so that I never, when I'm 80, look back and say, I wish I spent more time building a deep relationship with my son. I wish I didn't miss out on those moments. I wish I didn't you know, miss coaching his little league team, like doing all those little things um, that mean so much and that have so much texture and meaning at the end. I want to make sure that I'm really, really around for them. So that's, I mean, that is like the biggest overarching principle of how I'm trying to pursue things on a daily basis is really being present for all of those moments. This whole concept of designing your life. I actually live and die by it. I've thought really hard about how do I design mine, right? Built a company around a mission I care about. My my younger brother, who's my best friend, works with us, my two best friends. The people we work with have all become like family too move my parents next door. And so I think about how do you create, and I love that word that you use, uh, an experience that has a lot of texture in it, right? Because what you realize, it's the journey. And to your point, it's not the end point because it's always a mirage at the end of the day. You seem like you have a masterful, I would say, grasp on how to create and design a life very intentionally. What's the process you use as you're going into a new phase? So David Foster Wallace, the author, gave this speech at Kenyon College, commencement speech. Um, I think it's like 1995, maybe, uh, where he talked about the insidious things about worship and the worship that we typically place in life, the things that we default kind of fall into. He talks about the fact that they're unconscious, they're default settings of what you're supposed to worship. A lot of them for most people revolve around money and you just default into that. You've never thought about it. So I thought a lot about how do I opt out of that? How do I create a life by design rather than by default? For me, what that meant was basically figuring out what are the core elements that actually really matter to me. Like when I'm 80, when I'm 50 even, what are the real things that I want to be present in my life? Or what are the things that I know I'm really going to regret at the end so that I can reverse engineer into the present? How do I avoid regretting those things? Jeff Bezos famously did this with like the decision to leave D.E. Shaw to go start Amazon. He sat down and said, am I going to regret when I'm 80 not having done this? This like start an online bookstore was the thing that he wanted to do, which seems ridiculous relative to his seven figure a year deal at D.E. Shaw. He was probably, you know, order of mag- like probably going to make tens of millions of dollars if he stayed on that path. But he wanted to go start an online bookstore. And he said, I'm going to regret this when I'm 80 if I don't do it. So I should go do it. I wanted to basically use that same principle of figuring out what are the things that I'm going to regret at the end if I don't pursue them or if I don't build them into my life. And now how do I, using that knowledge, think about how I create my life today? A lot of similar things to what you said. I mean, for me, it was time with my son, time with my wife, like real present time on a daily basis, being close to my parents. We moved back to the East Coast so that we were much, much closer. I realized just how little time I was gonna have with my parents left uh, in the world. Really prioritizing time with close friends, not worrying so much about like having this massive circle of people that I'm constantly trying to keep up with networking, all of that, but like really prioritizing those handful of close relationships. 
and really focusing and working on something that I find meaningful and purpose driving. And you mentioned building a company around a mission that you really care about. I think that that is one of the most important things that I've done is I'm trying to work on things that I really care about and not focusing nearly as much on money as I ever would have in my finance path. Everything was about how you made money. It was all like, at the end of the day, you were just trying to figure out how to move money around so that you could make money. That's what it was. Um, what I've found is that by focusing less on that and by focusing more on energy and more on purpose, you somehow end up making more money too, which is kind of the funny like paradox of all of this. Um, but that was like, broadly speaking, how I thought about it when I went in. But I was kind of born to like the lottery and I got so lucky. Two parents that loved me dearly, that spent tremendous amounts of time with me. Two parents that made sure that they gave me love and they over-educated me and enough, I would say, financial stability so I could go take risks, right? And so the paradox of this is also, when you know you have a little bit more stability, you probably take some more risks. What about people that don't have that, those financial means? How do they take that big step in their lives? Yeah, I don't think things have to be as risky as we make them out. I, like you know, like a lot of online gurus will tell you, quit your job and you know go start your thing. Like just screw it. Like leave your job and go do it. I didn't do this as my main thing until I was actually making more money doing this than I was on my day job. And I was doing both at the same time. It was just like on the weekends, I was doing all my writing and building this thing that I was really excited about. It didn't feel like crazy working hours because I was loving it and really enjoying it. But I kept the hedge of I was still working at my day job and doing okay. So if nothing had come from this, I knew I was still going to be all right and able to continue working. I personally think that for most people, that's the right path to pursue. It's like you don't have to go all in on this side hustle and just like hope that you can make it into something. I actually think that that leads to worse decisions because if I had left, say I'd quit my job a year earlier, just when I was getting started with all this stuff and I wanted to go all in on it, I would have had to make money. Like I would have had to very, very early on figure out how to monetize my platform. So I probably would have spent a bunch of time figuring out what products I could sell, what courses I could, I mean, all the ways that creators typically make money. Because I kept my day job while I was doing it, I was able to think much more deeply about connection with the community and connection with my audience and how to grow it and really maintain and foster actual human connection with people, which leads to a whole lot more optionality on the back end of it. And so I actually think that it's like a false dichotomy that a lot of people create in that you say you have to do one or the other. I don't think that's true at all. If you're loving this new side project that you're working on, it can be a couple hours a week, 10 hours a week, 20 hours a week, and you can slowly scale it up as you have more means and opportunity to do so without having to feel like it's all or nothing going into it. It's interesting you say that. I remember that I was at Eli Lilly. When I first had the idea that I was really going to go do this thing, and then I went to another large, well-funded startup, and I told their CEO in a year and a half I was going to leave, and he actually helped finance mm -hmm. that first company. And it is, to your point, if you really love this thing, right, if it lights you up mm -hmm. from inside, it doesn't feel like work. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's like this cliche thing that a lot of people say is like, it doesn't feel like work when you're doing that stuff. In my experience, it's really it's really been true. Mm -hmm. There's this... um. When you start getting paid, it sometimes does change though. It's like the one thing to be wary of. There's this awesome experiment that was done at Stanford, um, the Stanford marker experiment, call it, that basically they went into a group of like preschoolers or kindergartners. A bunch of them love drawing. 
And so they took the group that loved drawing and they split them into three groups. They took one group and said, uh, you're going to draw and we're going to give you a re reward at the end for drawing. The second group, they didn't say anything to. They just said, you're going to draw. And at the end of it, they gave them a re reward without them knowing. And then the third group didn't get told anything and they didn't get a reward at the end. They went back a few years, a few uh, weeks later and watched the group and the group that had been told they were going to get a reward and then given the reward didn't like drawing nearly as much as they did before. They drew a ton less because all of a sudden this like incentive that they had been promised and then given was taken away. And so drawing was less intrinsically motivating to them than before because an, a reward had been attached to it all of a sudden. And I find that to be such an interesting concept in general for how you think about your own motivations about what you're pursuing in life. It's like you need to do things that just feel like play sometimes. And so making sure that those things, even if you do start to monetize them, even if you do start to make money from them, they start to be a job. You need to make sure that they still feel like play to you in some way in order to do them over the long run. How do you, and now you're kind of building this little media empire. How do you go back to making sure it feels like Yeah, I try to avoid doing anything um, that feels like a drag. And that's a that's very much a privilege of the state that I've built this whole thing into. But for me, I I immediately opted out or avoided anything that started to feel like a job, like the whole course thing that a lot of creators do. It's like, I don't want to do this. I don't like it. I don't like the idea of having a bunch of people that I charge money for something. And I don't want to charge people for anything. Like I'll, I'll eventually, my book will eventually come out and I'll hope people will buy that and I'll ask them to. But that'll really be the first thing that I ever ask my audience to buy from me. Like I don't sell anything. You don't see me like I'm not out, uh, you know, promote, promoting my latest product or course or like tweeting about, you know, all this different stuff. I'm just giving out a whole lot of value for free and I can make money in plenty of different ways on the back end that I don't really talk about. Like, you know, I have businesses, things that are running in the back end that's much different and easier for me to do to maintain the fact that my content, the cr creation that I do will feel like play. It doesn't feel like a job because I don't feel like I'm going out and asking people for things along the way. So let me take it, let me take it back to something else that you said. So I'm ready to make a large transition in my life. Okay. First thing I wanna do is I wanna think about the experiences in the future that I want in my current life. Mm -hmm. Second thing is I don't have to quit my job. I can basically say, let me do both things, ramp off one until I feel like the other one's successful. What are the other frameworks that you apply when you're make going through different transitions? I did something called the energy calendar that I think is like probably the most powerful overall technique that I've used that I think anyone can apply to their life. So the energy calendar idea is that you at the end of every single day for a week, you look at your calendar and you color code things according to whether it created energy was neutral or drained energy. So anything that created energy, you mark as green and you literally change the color in your calendar. Anything that was neutral, leave as yellow. And then anything that drained your energy, you turn to red. At the end of a week, you look at this calendar that basically gives you a really good sense of the trends of what type of activities create energy for you, what type of things are neutral, and what type of things are just draining for you. So an example for me was like, get to know you like Zoom calls, like networking Zoom calls, massively energy draining for me. But in person, one-on-one, -on -one, actually creating energy for me. I really like getting to sit and talk to people and get to know them and, and experience them in person. And so at the end of the week, you get this sense of trends and you can slowly start to reposition and redesign your life to have a higher ratio of green to red, a higher ratio of energy creating to energy draining. You're never going to completely eliminate the energy draining things from your life. You can't just like 
entirely, maybe 1% of 1% of people have the freedom to be able to do that. Maybe we want to eventually get there. But in the short run, you can do a better job of focusing time in your calendar on those green energy things and slowly trying to eliminate the red. And sometimes there's also an opportunity to turn red into yellow. So like for me, uh, if a Zoom video call is really energy draining, doing that as a phone call on a walk is actually neutral for me. Uh, it probably still doesn't create energy, but it's neutral. And so then I can just flip those calls. Now, all of a sudden, I've eliminated a bunch of red on my calendar and turned it into something that's neutral. At the end of a week, if you have more green than you did in the past, you feel completely different. At the end of a day, I mean, at the end of a day, you feel much more charged up to take on whatever your personal life stuff is, your relationships, your partner, kids, whatever it is, if you've gone through a day and felt like you gained energy from the things you were doing. So the energy calendar to me is a 100% to do for anyone that hasn't gone through the exercise. You know, what's so interesting is I actually have done something similar. And what I've realized is that the order of things actually changes the color. And I'll give you a weird one. When my fiance says, hey, we need to talk about relationship stuff at the end of a day after I've been through 12 hours of conversations, man, energy draining completely yeah. pulls it out. But if we decide to do it during a walk in the middle of the day, when I'm present, it actually is incredibly energizing because we can sort through some problems. Mm -hmm. And then I go through the rest of my day feeling like, you know what, I've accomplished something in my personal life mm -hmm. versus in the opposite. Man, it is a hard conversation. There are actually studies that show that um, dealing with difficult conversations while on a walk makes them much more effective and much easier to deal with. Um, something about not staring someone like feeling adversarial like face to face and when people walk together their feet start walking in sync and there's this actual physical and, and emotional connection that happens so there's actually something to that from a science perspective of of being able to go and walk with someone when you're having a difficult conversation what are the other things that give you green um you know deep focused work on something creative yes is uh probably my number one professional energy creating activity and the other thing i think is important to your point on timing and sequencing of events is there are times of day where you personally based on your circadian rhythm or how you naturally flow are most well suited to work on those creative projects for me that's first thing in the morning so that means i get up really really early because i know that that first two hours of my day is when i'm in peak creative flow state and that's when i need to do that thing i don't want to be getting emails or texts or jumping on phone calls or doing whatever other things during that window because it's it's like sacred. That's when I really need to capitalize and take advantage and write things for my book or newsletter or whatever content I'm trying to create, whatever I'm doing. Um, so for me, that's probably the biggest professional energy creating activity. Um, and then personal, you know, I'd say there's two and one is like any training that I'm doing at the moment, whatever I'm trying to work at to get better at from a, from a training standpoint. Right now, that's a lot of running. Um, and then time with my son and wife, you know, uh, getting to actually really be present and play with him and kind of experience him learning and how he's observing the world and kind of getting better at the world in whatever way that he's trying to is really, really fun. It's so interesting that you talk about, you say the word present. And I'll tell you one of the biggest learnings that I probably had over the past year or so is my fiance, Rachel, she's an entrepreneur too. She works out of the house. We have our two dogs there. And for me, I get a tremendous amount of energy from being around them and I'm constantly working. 
And she'd keep on saying to me, Sad, I need you to be present. I was like, I, I am present. I'm sitting here. She's like, no, you're on your laptop or you're on a call and we're doing something where there's actually your mind is completely somewhere else. And it took me some, some time and some maturity to realize like, no, focus time with no distractions with the person completely changes. I'm going to use your word again, the texture of the experience. Did you go through that transition? Yes. Um, there is a massive difference between time and energy. Mm -hmm. And it took me a long, long time to figure this out. You know, I would say, oh, we just spent an hour together. Mm -hmm. And the reality is if you're on your phone, you're texting, responding to emails, or you're on your laptop, or you're just watching a show and you're not really there, that hour of time can mean nothing to the other person because they didn't feel your presence and your connection. On the flip side, 15 minutes of present focused energy where you were really with the person, really intently listening, asking, following up, really there with them can go date. I mean, it can it can last for days. You can really feel connected to someone for a long period of time if you just put in that real focused energy. And so understanding the difference between time and energy in everything that you do. We, we talk about it in the relationship concept. It's interesting. You talked about your green activity is professionally focused creative work and i'm guessing no distractions the conclusion i've come to is that whenever i want to give something focused energy whether it's personal or professional it quite literally need to i need to say let me carve off all the distractions from around it and for me there are these levels meaning i probably start an activity for the first 10 15 minutes maybe you're faster because you can context switch a little bit faster I have to kind of find a pocket and get rid of all the other externalities that could be potentially entering my head. Maybe I'll do some box breathing beforehand. Then all of a sudden, if I almost stop thinking about it too much, I slip into like a little bit of a flow pattern. It is in that flow or that pocket that the magic happens. And it really is, I've got to force myself half an hour into that place. And all of a sudden there feels like there's a true amount of connection with the material. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that having a power up sequence for how you get into that is really important. I, um, I'm terribly easily distracted and I have terrible ability to focus. And I mean, I'm like pathetic levels of focus if, if I'm not really locked in on something. And the way that I get to locked in state is that I have the same sequence that I do of events leading up to it. Every single morning I get up, I get in my cold plunge and I do that and that locks me in. And then I go get a large black cold brew from Dunkin' Donuts. And then I sit down at my desk. I put on the same kind of headphone sounds that I'm putting on. And I know all those things kind of trigger me to be locked in on the thing. And if I do all those things, I can really get focused because I know it's my power up sequence into focus mode. If I'm missing something in there, like if I, you know, miss my cold plunge, sleep a little late, do different things, I can cobble it together. But it's never quite as good as when I just nail my power-up sequence. It's a reason that I don't like traveling as much as I used to. I used to love just being on the road, hotels, whatever. But now I know I don't sleep as well. I can't do my cold plunge routine in the morning. I don't get the same coffee that I really like. I can control the sounds and try to be there in that present state, but it's not quite the same. And so I think that having that consistent, like knowing what that short routine is, it can be like two minutes, whatever, that just turns you on into that mode is really, really powerful. Um, and I think more people should think about it. And by the way, the same goes for a shutdown sequence. At the end of the day, when you need to turn off and you need to be present with the people in your life and you need to flip off work mode, having a sequence of events that you know allows your mind to be at ease so that you're not just thinking about what you're missing or the work or the urgent thing that's popping up that you're not around for, is really, really important. 
And the other thing too, I want to kind of hit on is interestingly, your power down sequence, at least mine is actually preparing me for my power up sequence in the morning as well too. Cause if it's not laid out, it makes it so much more mental strain in order to get into it. Are you the same way? Yes. I, I mean, the easiest thing that anyone can do to level up their life is write down the three things that they're going to do the next morning, the night before. If you just do that, if you literally just sit down for like five minutes at the end of your day and write down three things that you're going to accomplish the next day, your days will immediately get, I don't know, 5x better. Yeah, I believe it. I mean, I like... I can almost guarantee that because it that single thing has allowed me to really break through quite a bit because you, you hit the ground running. Like there's no friction in what you're starting the next day because you know what the couple most important things are. It also is hugely liberating when you get those couple things done and it's like 7 a.m. and you've gotten your three big things done for the day because I know, I mean, now the son, you know, wife, things happen, like days go to shit. But if I've gotten a button, my first work block is from 5.30 to 7.30 in the morning because that's when I can focus before my son wakes up, easy for me to tackle. And I know it's quiet. There's nothing coming in. If I've gotten a bunch done, like Monday morning, I write my two newsletters for the week during that window. At 7.30 in the morning, I'm done with my one major thing that I like really have to get done for the whole week. Mm -hmm. And like the only thing that I really, really have to do on any given week is like get those newsletters done. And I'm done with them by 7.30 a.m. on Monday morning. You know how good that feels to just start the week with that winning feeling? And you know how it is, like momentum just builds during the course of the week. When you do that to start a week or to start a day, everything rolls off of it and you just get into kind of a winning mentality. So, I, I mean, I think that starting the night before with just a tiny bit of prep, I mean, your life changes when you realize that 15 minutes of time on Sunday evening is worth like three hours on Monday morning. All day long, so, all day long. I couldn't agree with you more. Talk to me about the time billionaire concept, right? It's one of your, one of your tweets, one of the concepts that's kind of gone viral. We've talked about it a lot internally. Yeah. Um, so the first time I had ever heard this mentioned was Graham Duncan. He's an investor uh, on the Tim Ferriss show. He talked about this idea that we glorify dollar billionaires in our society, but that time billionaires we never talk about. The whole idea is that when you are 20 years old, you have about 2 billion seconds left if you're going to live until you're, uh, until you're 80. There's about 30 years in a billion seconds. And you are a time billionaire at 20 years of age. At 50 years of age, you're still a time billionaire. You have a billion seconds left in your life. But we don't relate to ourselves that way. We don't think about the fact that our time is ticking down and it's so finite and so precious. A huge part of being a time billionaire in my mind is actually just appreciating and understanding the precious nature of our time, how little of it we have, how quickly it goes away, and how precious the time is with the people who have less of it than our, than we do left as well, our parents, older people in our lives. I have thought about this more and more. I mean, you, you've if you've followed my content, you know that since my son was born, time has been so top of mind for me. A big reason for that is that when you have a kid, all of a sudden you measure your life in weeks and months, which you've never done in your entire life. I mean, when have you ever sat down and been like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm 30 years old and seven weeks. Like you just don't do it. That's not how you measure time. But when you have a kid, everyone asks you, oh, how old are they? And you say like six weeks, nine weeks, you know, three months, 17 weeks, whatever. People say all these different numbers and everything is measured in weeks and months. 
And it makes you so aware of the passage of time. And it makes you so aware of the fact that it's flying by with them. Like the whole saying of the days are long, but the years are short is so true. I mean, I like he just turned one. I feel like it's a blink of an eye since he was born. And we've had all these unbelievable moments. I'm around every single day, I barely travel anymore. I'm really present in there, but it flies by. And I'm not going to get that many more of those moments. I mean, even like now, you know, we'll have him in bed before we go to bed at night. And he does this thing where he'll like, you know, I'm sitting on my side of the bed and he'll look upside down at me, like look back over his head and be like smiling at me and wanting to play. And I took a picture of him the other night because I said to my wife, like, I have no idea how many more times he's going to do that. Like make this funny upside down face at me smiling. I mean, it might be a year. I don't know. Maybe even less. Um, and I want to remember it. Like I want to have that picture in my mind because I, I can see it so vividly right now. But 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 40 years from now, when I'm 70, 80 years old, I'm going to wish that I had that moment back. And it's such a call to action to when times are stressful and frustrating on a daily basis, and this applies to kids, it also applies just to anything that you're doing in life when you're young. When you're 80, when you're 70, when you're 60, you would give anything to be back in that frustrating moment at age 30. And it's such a powerful realization that that's gonna be the case because it just makes you wanna grind through whatever this moment is and just appreciate it for what it is. Appreciate the texture, the stress, whatever it is that you're feeling in the moment, rather than rejecting it and wanting to fast forward through it, just embrace it and go through it, walk through it, go through the mud in a certain way with the people that you that you love and that you're around because someday you really are going to miss it and wish that you had it back. I'll never forget the moment that I felt like I was given time back in my life, right? And so this is gonna sound silly. I just turned 35 and I was kind of bummed because I, in my mind, for some reason, I had this mentally 35, you're probably through more than halfway through your career, you're going to be 50 pretty soon. People start to mail it in right after 50, right? Which is a silly thing for a, a child now when I think about it to, to think. I ended up going to, I ended up going with a friend for his 50th birthday party and I told him about the way I was feeling. And he's like, well, look, you believe you're going to live until you're 120, right? And I said, 100%, wholeheartedly. I think it's the medical advances are in place in order for that to happen. He said, well, if you think you're going to live until 120 and you think you're going to do it in pretty good health, it's almost like you have another 70 good years of life ahead of you, not or discounting the kind of crappier years at the end. And I said, oh my God, you're right. And he said, if you realize you're actually going to live longer, it's almost like you were 18 years old with now the, we'll call it the bank account and the wisdom of a 35-year-old. And I remember in that moment, I literally went, oh my God, you're completely right. I am in my infancy if I believe I'm going to be living a little bit longer here. And it was the most liberating and empowering feeling because all of a sudden, it literally just from thinking about it made me feel 20 years younger. As you're going forward in your life and you've, I would say, discovered this concept, and it's really been like a gift that's been given to you, right? Because you never thought about it like this before. How do you live your life differently? I would say I spend much more time focusing on eulogy virtues versus resume virtues. Mm -hmm. David Brooks, author, writer, wrote about this. I think it's like maybe in 2015, he wrote an op-ed in the New York Times that just talked about the difference between resume virtues and eulogy virtues. Resume virtues are the things that show up on your resume. It's like the things that you want to stand out. It's like your LinkedIn page, you know, all the accomplishments, the achievements, whatever. 
eulogy virtues are the things that people say about you at your funeral, whether you were caring, loving, if you had the capacity to have courage, loyalty, um, the things that really matter in the end. And I spend much more time today thinking about that than I do about any resume virtues. Um, my like, I spent a lot of time in my life early on thinking that I needed to achieve some extraordinary financial success or professional success in order to feel uh, a sense of achievement and a sense of happiness. And that was always proven right to me by the fact that every time I achieved some level of financial success or achievement, that I didn't feel happy and that there was some other thing that I was like, oh, then I'll feel happy, whatever it is. When, you know, when I get X, then I'll be happy. I kept doing that. Um, and so it kept being, it was self-affirming because I knew, okay, okay, well, I'm not happy at making a million dollars. Now I'm going to make 10 million. Now I made 10 million. All right, well, it's got to be a hundred million. It'll be when I feel really happy and then I'll have what I need. Um, and I've completely given that up. I mean, I am more happy, fulfilled, and joyful on a daily basis today than I've ever been in my entire life. And I don't want to change. I mean, I, honestly, I don't want anything to ruin that. I don't want to change that by doing some like taking on some dramatic new thing or trying to make some leap at some you know new opportunity. I constantly am asking myself, what am I saying no to by saying yes to this? And I evaluate every opportunity through that lens because when I think about it, what am I saying no to? It's time with my son, yeah. no matter what it is. Uh, and so the opportunity has to be so incredible that I'm willing to say no to time with my son in order to take it on. I mean, you could literally sit here today and say like, I will give you a hundred million dollars to work 80 hours a week for the next two years. And that's like, oh my God, you know, unbelievable, like generational wealth for whatever. And I would say no. And I wouldn't even have to think about it, to be totally honest, because I just don't want to do that. I don't I don't know what I would do with $100 million if you gave it to me. Like, I, not, nothing interesting enough that I would give up two years of time with my son during the prime of my time with him. Nothing. Like, And that, to me, is a really, really liberating sensation, that I have one thing that I know I'm not willing to say no to um, for any new opportunity out there. It allows me to cut through the noise. And it means that if I am going to say yes to some new opportunity, something else has to kind of go. I'm not actually just going to take on 10 new things in order to make twice as much money or whatever it is. It really needs to have something that is so deeply meaningful to me that it really matters and can sit alongside the things that I really care about in the end. How old are you when you, dis when you discovered this whole time billionaire concept? Uh, 31. Okay. Your son's going to be five years old in a couple of years. How do you take the wisdom that you got in your 30s mm -hmm. and distill it into him? And how do you tell him to live his life differently? Yeah, I think it's impossible. Mm -hmm. This is one of my new learning. This is definitely something I've changed my mind on in the last year since he's been born. I thought before he was born that I could like write out a list of all the principles that I wanted my son to embody and the things I wanted to teach him and the things he was going to learn. And I'm going to sit down and I'm going to explain them to him. Like, I really thought that I'm kind of a fixer. Like, that's kind of what I thought I was going to sit down and do that. And what I realized is they kind of come out with a kit the same way we were born with a kit. Like we had a personality, we had a perspective on the world. Our job as parents, in my opinion, is to embody the values 
that we would like them to learn and embrace in the long run. Not to teach it to them, but to just embody them. And hopefully they will learn to kind of embrace by osmosis a similarly strong set of values through which to live their life. My parents are the two most incredible people in the world. I'm sure they taught me a whole lot of things along the way. I was a shithead until I was, <laughs> I don't know, 29. Like, uh, just you have to figure things out for yourself. You have to get punched in the face. You have to get knocked down and figure it out. And as a parent, that's scary because you don't want to see your kid have pain or suffer or whatever it is, but it's a part of the growth and learning experience. The same way as a one-year-old learning to walk, he has to fall flat on his face in order to learn how to walk. I can't teach him how to walk. I can walk with him and try to do things, but until he realizes that by getting too far out in front of his feet, he falls flat on his face and it really hurts, he's not going to learn to walk. It's the exact same thing when you're 20. Your parents can like guide you to certain things that'll matter for your career, but until you fall flat on your face, Face, you're not going to actually have learned that thing. And that same principle, I think, just applies to your entire life. And so, you know, for me, I'm much less focused on trying to figure out things I can teach him and how to teach him all these things. I'm really focused on embodying the things that I want him to see. So when he sees me working hard on things, that matters to me. When he sees me, you know, bring him out like in the gym at my house and watch me if I'm like deadlifting or doing something that I think is hard or, you know, running in some race or whatever it is, I want him to see that because I know that he's a sponge and he's soaking it up and experiencing it. The same way I saw my dad working hard and pushing on things that really mattered to him, that lit him up intellectually, that got instilled with me. It wasn't anything they ever said. And so as you're thinking about these experiences in your life that are just incredibly important, that are transformational for you, what are the ones you think that you need to make sure Roman sees at an early age? I think experiencing different cultures is very, very important and seeing different sides of the world and different sides of life is extremely important. I mean, I'm, I'm half Indian. I mentioned that, um, my mom grew up in Bangalore. Uh, and so I spent a lot of time in India as a kid and just seeing that life wasn't this like middle-class, uh, small town outside Boston, that out life outside that actually looks very different for a lot of people in the world was extremely, extremely important to me for perspective and kind of building uh, the type of empathy and type of, uh, you know, attitude around my own, uh, you know, around my own gifts and gratitude for that. And I think that he needs to see the world in order to experience that. It's very, very hard to appreciate. You know, he's growing up in Westchester, right? It's like one of the wealthiest counties in the world, probably. And like, we have a nice backyard. Like he, he has a very nice life and he's not hopefully knock on wood going to have, um, you know, a really like primal level of struggle in his life. I hope not knock on wood. Um, but he needs to understand that there are different sides to the world and he needs to understand that, uh, you know, feeling real gratitude and feeling, uh, some, somewhat of a duty and an empathy to help other people is something that we really care about in our family. Um, and I want him to develop that awareness. I just, I think it only comes from really seeing it and experiencing it and, and being, being with it. My parents making it one of the core principles of our life to give, mm -hmm. meaning if you have something, just give it away because there are people that are less fortunate, has actually probably become the cornerstone of my life and arguably the one value I want to make sure my children have mm -hmm. because it teaches you humility. It teaches you that you should be grateful regardless of what you don't have actually. And so I guess as you think about this, right, 
how do you give Roman those experiences? Are you going to take him back to India? Yeah, I mean, definitely. Yes, he will definitely go back to India. My wife and I are also, um, we have for the last, I don't know, this is probably now eight or 10 years supported this, um, a little boy in India, um, for his education, basically he comes from one of the lower castes in India. The caste system still runs very deep within the culture. Um, comes from a poor family, wouldn't have been able to have education opportunities. And um, we've paid for him to go to school every year at a good school and continue to grow up and experience that. And he's now 13 years old. Um, and it's amazing because every time I go to India, I get to see all the new things he's learning and his English is so good. And he's, you know, playing with Legos and showing me all the stuff that he's building and doing. And, um, I want to experience that on a, on a grander scale. And so I'm, I'm in the process now of setting up a foundation, um, family foundation that we'll use to support children's education in India. Um, and I think my wife will run it and, my hope is that Roman will be a part of it, um, you know, over time and kind of want to be involved and experience, uh, the benefits that it creates and, um, the real human impact that I think it can create. Well, man, listen, I appreciate you so much for coming out. This was awesome. I'm glad we got to do it. Thank you for having me. Hey guys, thanks for listening into this episode of hone in. If you like this episode, please make sure to subscribe and Hey, if you have a minute, drop a comment below with your biggest learning, your insights, your takeaways from this conversation. I would personally love to hear from you. Tune in each week for more answers to questions, solutions to problems, and tangible advice that you can apply to your life to live smarter, stronger, and longer. One more thing before you guys leave. This is important. The Honan Podcast is intended as general information. Our purpose is to educate, inspire, and support you as you live a healthier, longer life. The use of information on this podcast is not, and I repeat, not intended as a substitute for the advice of a physician, medical, or mental health professional. And it should not serve as diagnosis or treatment. If you are suffering from a psychological or a mental health condition, please seek help from a qualified health professional. Thank you so much for listening to us.